Okay. Well, that's a great way to start a passage on unity. And again, we are in Ephesians chapter 4, if you want to turn there in your Bibles. And if you like jotting down notes, there's a sheet in there in your bulletins that you can scribble over. Uh, I think it was last week or so, one of the little girls, Ari, showed me her sermon notes. And it was a mixture of, of pictures and words. Uh, it was impressive. She was absolutely paying attention um, you know, in some ways better. <laughs> I, I've, I've seen adults do worse jobs of paying attention, I'll say that. But it was all pictures. I mean, it was almost all pictures and a few words and, and some, some memes and jokes were, were strewn in there. But they absolutely demonstrated that she was paying attention. Whatever you need to do to get this to be a part of your thinking, writing it down, drawing a picture, doodling, that's fine. Um, but the goal is to, um, to really believe these things matter for us. Now, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, we talked about unity. And remember, the phrase was one, 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 over and over again. One body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. And the idea is that we are united in the one who unites us. We are united in things beyond just our common interests or background, but one in something God is and has done and gives to us. And so the call is to walk in a manner worthy of that calling. That if the oneness and the truth of who we are in Christ is so weighty, you could say, on the scale, our living, our attitudes, our words, our actions must be of equal balance to the glories of this theology and truth. So we need to live a life equal to it. Remember, we talked about the balances and the scales there. Now, when you think of that scale and you think of all the glories of Christ, is it like a feather is on this side, and so it's not hard at all to live as God intends? Or is this theology, which he's spent really three chapters talking about, is that very weighty? And so when you think about living in that way, you think, I, my, my life can't possibly match up to that. How am I supposed to have that kind of unity? How can I live up to this calling um, that, that Jesus puts upon my life when, when he's done so much, when who he is is so far above me, and who he is is so grand and noble. Well, this is the kindness of God that he gives us grace, that unity is not attainable through our gifting, our natural gifting, so God gifts us what we need. And that's the theme of verses 7 through 16. We're going to get through just a few verses today because there's kind of a, a hermeneutical issue um, but unity is not attainable through our own giftings. So God gifts us what we need, including leadership. We'll get there probably next time. Now, this is a, a general principle of Christianity. John Piper puts it this way. You cannot obey God without God. You cannot obey God without God. He must equip and empower us to do what he commands. Because what he commands is to be like himself. Well, how can we be like God in our own sinful, finite, uh, somewhat inept, right, uh, selves? We, we can't. So if God calls us to be like him, he must also be obligated to equip and uh, empower us to do so. Another way to put that, we cannot please God 
apart from God. You can't obey God without God. You cannot please God apart from God. Now, that should relieve some pressure. And we see that weight and that scale of his glories, his excellency. And we think, oh, I need to live in um, an equal way to that. God is very well aware that we don't match up. So he's going to pile on gifts so that we can live a life equal to our calling. This is um, freeing and liberating because the focus now then isn't on me, it's on God. It's not my problem, it's God's problem. Oh, really, God, you want me to do that? I'm not entirely sure, but let's see what you're going to do because if you called me to it, you must also equip and empower me to do it. And this is the story, really, of so many heroes of the faith, from Moses to Daniel to Esther to Joseph to Mary. You could go down the whole list of the hall of faith and see this very testimony, God calling us to obey, calling these men and women to obey, something that, that God must also equip and enable. So that's, that's liberating. I hope that's good news to you this morning. If you feel like the call to you know, be a, a good Christian or a good husband or wife or son or daughter seems very, very burdensome, God is saying, I know, and I'm going to gift you. I'm going to empower you. I'm going to equip you to take care of it. Now, the calling is to be unified, and that's no small task. It's beyond what any of us can do when you think about it. I know I use these kinds of uh, illustrations, and it, it's a little silly, but if, if I wanted us to be united, even about simple things, color of the carpet, pizza toppings, you know, just mundane, simple things. Um, we're going to have a church business meeting at the end of the month. Um, it's very difficult to achieve, like, the kind of, like, total unanimity and unity that God is calling us to hear. So I, I'm not I very much feel the weight and the burden of thinking, how in the world can we achieve unity in this church? That is too high, too hard a goal, and that is exactly where Paul steps in and says this in verse 7. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. In this case, that, that word but at the beginning of verse 7 is saying exactly that. Here's this very tall task that you can't do, and I know. But contrasting, this is a, contra, a word of contrast, right? <laughs> Live in this incredible unity, but you can't do it, can you? It's hard, isn't it? But don't worry. Grace is being given, each one according to the measure of Christ's gift. And the word grace, we talk about this a lot, of course, as a church, so just by way of re review, Grace means a gift. It already means a gift. So talking about grace being given is a little bit redundant. But grace, I want to emphasize here, is different than just any old gift. Grace emphasizes that we don't deserve this gift. It's one thing when it's your birthday, and everyone is acknowledging you and talking about how wonderful a person you are, and they sing your praises, and bring you a cake, and shower you with gifts. But imagine instead, so th that's a day where you might feel it's, say, entitled to a gift. But imagine having an awful day at work or at school. You lost it with your kids. You alienated a good friend, 
Uh, you, you preached a real bad sermon. Um, you screwed up someone else's day with something you said carelessly. You cursed out the McDonald's worker, and you come home, right? And your friends and your family are all there, your favorite cake, a mountain of presents, all your favorite food, and they showered upon you. How would you feel in that moment? I mean, I, I don't know. I, I feel like I don't deserve this. I acted a fool today. I don't deserve any of this praise. I don't deserve any of these gifts. I deserve to have a piece of dry, moldy toast and eat it out in the rain. That's what I deserve. Grace is special because it's a gift from God specifically that you don't deserve. That in that moment where you feel like you least deserve it, God says, I know you don't. That's just how much I love you. I'm still going to give it to you no matter how awful you've been. And it's hard sometimes to embrace that because I think when you really drill down in, into your heart, and it's all just you know my own heart, Secretly, we do feel like we either have to earn gifts or earn people's favor or that we deserve gifts and deserve people's favor. I mean, literally in, in Korean culture, money is a very frequent gift. So it's not rude to give money at weddings and other events. But I remember um, at my wedding, my dad had a ledger. He needed to know exactly you know, which of the Korean side of the, um, of the guest list how much each one gave at the wedding to make sure that he, if he ever went to the wedding of one of his friend's kids, would give a proportionate amount. Does that make sense? So he needs to know kind of what, it was sort of a measure of, of status and stature. And so you want to give appropriate amounts in return. So it's a gift, yes, and, you know, all those, I'll say this, like, all, all of my dad's friends, they, they really truly, you know, do love me and the family, but it's just part of the culture. You need to keep track of how much who gives and how much you give to them, and so that it's, it's all proportionate, right? You got to think about that sort of thing. Now, I, I say that, and it sounds a little bit judgmental, but don't think you haven't probably done that yourself. You know, you, you give a spouse a really nice gift for the anniversary, Right? And the spouse gives something a little less luxurious in return. And you, you can't help but think, I, I really gave you something super nice. And this is, you know, not as nice. And you, you try to push that sort of thought away. Just be thankful for the gift. But we do that, don't we? Or we give a gift to someone and we kind of expect something in return. Maybe when it's our birthday or maybe that that person might owe us a favor later. That's the way that we are. But God, his grace is not like that. His gift is not like that. It is exactly a heart of giving to those who least deserve it. And throughout the Bible, including here, grace isn't just a gift, but it's the gift that keeps on giving. In other words, grace isn't just a one-time thing. God has a continual attitude of kindness towards us that always graciously gives us what we need at all times, so that we can glorify him. Romans 8.32 is clear. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Now, all things doesn't mean, as you know, you know, Corvettes, Ferraris, you know, personal jets, all that stuff. It's all things that you need to glorify 
him. That treasure house is always open. That's what grace does. It unlocks all of that for us. Going back to Ephesians 4, God's grace then gives to each one according to the measure of Christ's gift. What does that mean? Well, first of all, the gift that keeps on giving, God's grace, is giving to each one, meaning every Christian has been purposefully and graciously gifted by God in unique and specific ways to achieve the goal of unity or the bigger picture of to live in a godly way. We, we have everything we need, each one of us, but individually, uniquely, to do what God has called us to do, but specifically in the context of Ephesians 4, you have been gifted uniquely, individually, to gain that goal of unity with all of us. All believers, individually part of God's design to bring all the individuals into a whole. According to the measure of Christ's gift means that Jesus is the one who determines those gifts. And he, and he pours them out in conjunction with Christ's gift of salvation and every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. We talked about that in Ephesians 1. So Christ's gift to us, in a way, is overflowing uh, of just the salvation and, and blessing to us, is overflowing to us and giving us what we need in order to do all that Christ asks. And because our gifting comes from a united source, no matter how differently we are gifted in our different aptitudes and strengths, they're all perfectly, they will all perfectly fit into one plan and one purpose. I, I think a good application to consider then is that we need each other's differences in order to become unite, uh, uni unified and united. We already mentioned before in 1 Corinthians 12 the analogy of the body with its different parts working together and becoming one whole body, but it's such a good one. I mean, we don't have a whole and united body, you know, you, your, your physical body, by every part being an ear or a nose or a heart. Our bodies are amazing because they're a collection of very different kinds of organs and cells and appendages all working together to make one truly wonderful and amazing body. So you, you look at yourself, and I know I'm seeing you, a whole person. All of you is you right, sitting right there, but you are made up of this, the randomest collections of cells and, and atoms and, and molecules all arranged, all different, but perfectly becoming one body. And if we want unity in the church, it's not going to be then by trying to force everyone into a cookie-cutter mold and, and having to be exactly the same, that we are churning out product here at ICC, that we, we listen to the sermon and then we expect you guys to all come out and be exactly the same in every single way. That is not our goal. Instead, we... We need to, and we try to allow everyone to be different kinds of people with different giftings in God's sovereignty, and in that difference, see the whole and the, the functional um, uh, body of Christ made up of different, very different functioning parts. And we'll see that the job of the pastors, we won't get there today, the, the gifting of apostles, prophets, evangelists, 
shepherds and teachers is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Our job is not to churn out cookie-cutter Christians, but to enable you to use your gifting, use your experience, use who God made you to be to serve a whole and to serve a united church. John MacArthur puts it this way, Christians are not assembly line productions with every unit being exactly like every other unit. Consequently, no Christian can replace another in God's plan. He has his own individualized plan for each of us and has individually gifted us accordingly. We are not interchangeable parts in Christ's body. Now, Paul here does not end up going through uh, a list of those spiritual gifts, as we call them. Uh, we see these in other passages. Uh, I, I debated going into a whole detour on spiritual gifts, but it's not quite the emphasis of this passage, but I do want to just review the list so that you know them and will hear them today for your own reference. So Romans 12, verse 3 through 8, contains one such list of gifts. Romans 12, 3 through 8, Paul writes, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. So it's Romans 12, 3. And you hear the same verbs or uh, words, right? Grace has been given, and there's a measure of faith that God has assigned. So there's a particular uh, measured out, individualized uh, plan and gifting for each person. For as in one body, we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. And so here you have a short little list of different kinds of spiritual giftings. And Paul's point there, as it is that everywhere else he mentions spiritual gifts, is that these gifts are not for building up your kingdom. They're not for you to use uh, to get on social media platforms and, and get a lot of uh, of hype and influence for your sake and to build yourself up, these gifts are for serving and using for each other with the goal of building each other up in unity. And as we go through these lists, uh, I do hope you see in them some things that you are drawn to and you realize, yeah, God has, has kind of put that on my heart and gifted me in that area. I don't um, again, we won't get too deep in, in the weeds with the spiritual gifts, but I don't know that it's necessarily the case that Paul's saying you only have one gift, but rather all of us uh, have a different blending of these different gifts. And like maybe a painter's palette is a good analogy um, to use, where each of these gifts is like a, a color on, on a painter's palette. We're all painted with all of these colors, but some, you know, the red, there's more red in your portrait, your spiritual portrait than others. So there's some giftings that are stronger than others. But more than likely, uh, all of these gifts are things that you see a little bit in your life. And we also know that because many of these gifts are things that are commanded as well. So even if it's not your gifting, you need to do it. So it's not like only those who have the gift of mercy are to be merciful, for example. So 
another list is found in 1 Corinthians 12. Again, this is just by way of reminder. I don't want to spend too much time on it. Maybe we will in the future. Uh, 1 Corinthians 12, 4 through 11. 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 12, 4. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. So remember, one Spirit, one Lord in Ephesians 4, same idea. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all and everyone. Again, very casual inference about the Trinity. He just assumes the Trinity here. You have the Spirit, Jesus, God the Father. So just, it is what it is. To each is, uh, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit, who portions to each one individually as he wills. Going down to verse 28. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, uh, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But earnestly desire the higher gifts. And I will show you still a still more excellent way. Now, we won't get into the debates about speaking in tongues and some of those other kinds of um, what we would call sign gifts here. But the, the point is, in general, God has given many different kinds of gifts. I don't think those are meant to be, in those passages, like an exhaustive list of the kinds of spiritual gifts that God gives. Those are kind of the very obvious and telling ones, but um, I'll put it this way. What we do, who you are as a Christian, in all of your desires, attitudes, um, in all of your experience, you know, things you saw in your house growing up, all of that is under God's sovereign design and plan. So the parents you had, the home you grew up in, the experience you had as a middle child, the oldest child, the youngest, an only child, all of those things God has ordained in your life to make you the person that you are now and to use those things to, to, to grow in Christ-likeness and to build the unity of the church. All of it. Um, if you have a hard time, like, like I do sometimes, like really nailing down, you know, what is my spiritual gift? I, I know we can get very hung up on that to the point where we, like, that's our identity, um, that, that some people I know um, that, that are just absolutely sure this is their spiritual gift. You need to acknowledge that. I know that and very strong in that, finding that as their identity. I, I think Paul is saying there at the end of 1 Corinthians 12, like, don't do that. <laughs> don't just like, because not everyone is that. So what's the point of um, identifying? I'm the gift of uh, prophecy. And, you know, you all need to acknowledge that. Well, Paul's going to go on to say, you know, there's a, there's a love that needs to permeate all of that anyway. So even if you feel like, I don't know what my spiritual gift, maybe I don't have any. Maybe God left me out. When he was out there distributing it, you know, he just forgot. He overlooked me. I know some of you feel like that. No, he hasn't. You don't have to feel like you need to be neatly P 
pigeonholed into one of these categories of 15 spiritual gifts or something. God has made you, you. He's given you gifts that no one else has. You are uniquely and individually suited to do what you only can do. And you are part of that in this church to give of yourself who you are in service to the Lord. So if you want to talk about spiritual gifts, we can do that. If you want to take a spiritual gift inventory, we, we have you know, uh, sheets you can do if that's going to be helpful conversation for you. But I, I, don't, uh, I don't think Paul's uh, intention in making these lists is for us to do, to do what we do with almost anything in the Bible, is like write books and do seminars on them and then like you know, create a whole program. I, I don't think it's like that. I think Paul is just saying like, we all have different kinds of gifts. <laughs> and talents. Use them to serve the Lord and build up the church. Whatever that is that you do to, to, to do that and accomplish that, that's your spiritual gift. You know, even if you can't put a, a name on that. So, clear as mud? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Ephesians, going back to Ephesians. Um, we now get to a peculiar passage. It's maybe one of the hardest to navigate in terms of hermeneutics, uh, which is the, the, the art and science of Bible interpretation. So we're going to now, in a way, shift gears. We've got to think about how we interpret the Bible when we come to this. Okay, so we're going to shift a little bit of gears, talking about God's grace and spiritual gifts. We're going to talk about Christ's validation of those gifts by what he did. But in doing so, we've got to talk about um, a kind of a peculiar quote here. All right, verse 8, Paul says, Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Now, this is a hermeneutical issue or an interpretation issue because if in your Bibles, as in most Bibles, this is set off and it's put in quotes. What does that imply? That this is a quotation of some sort from the Old Testament. So what passage is this quoting? And it looks most like Psalm 68, 18. Now, um, you, this is, this is uh, where it's handy if you have a paper Bible, because you probably have a little um, tassel um, that you can lay down, or your finger. But go to Psalm 68, 18. If you're on an iPad or iPhone, you're going to have to figure out how to do the dual screen thing, and you put one passage on one side and the other. This is where maybe the uh, uh, us uh, paper wielders have an advantage, all right? Psalm 68, 18. So now I can do this. Yeah, do this on your iPhone. All right. <laughs> no offense if you're using an iPhone or an iPad. <laughs> don't, don't judge each other. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> Ephesians 4.8 says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. So note the, uh, the verbs, not the ascended one. Well, there's three verbs. Ascended, led, gave. Okay, ascended, led, gave. Okay, that's in Ephesians 4. Now look at Psalm 68, 18. You ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train and receiving gifts from among men, even among the rebellious that Yahweh God may dwell there. So ascend, we're good, right? The idea of ascending is right there. Leading, right? Leading a host, that's good. Where do you get tripped up? In Psalm 68, 18, you, and this is referring to God, is receiving gifts from men. But what does Ephesians 4 say? He gave gifts to men. That seems almost completely opposite, doesn't it? And Paul's point is very emphatic that this is about how God gives gifts 
to us, spiritual gifts, so that we can walk in, uh, in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called. So there seems to be a little bit of confusion here. Now, first, let's get the overall picture right here. When uh, the overall con context of, uh, of Psalm 68 is, um, is an image of God as a victorious conqueror who is freeing his people. And so you have here God ascending on high, leading a host of captives in your train. And this is a very common ancient Near East sort of practice where a conquering general would lead his, the defeated enemy forces and prisoners of war behind him to the capital or wherever the king dwelled. And it's almost as if that general is bringing in the spoils of war and presenting them as like a tribute to the king. Now here, the, the king and the general are the same. It's God. He is ascending um, on high, and he's leading this host of captives. And what was also common in the ancient Near East, and even, even today to a certain degree, is if you warred with another nation and you won, you would expect them to bring you tribute. Right? They're now a vassal state, and they are going to be under your rule, and so they're going to have to regularly give you tribute and money and gifts. And that's the image of Psalm 68:18. is we have uh, God leading this host of captives, and he is receiving gifts um, even among the rebellious, namely the, the conquered nations. Uh, and, and this is a very almost typical picture of, of things that would happen in terms of war and victory. Now, in Ephesians, one thing to note, it doesn't read like an exact translation over from Psalm 68. And in fact, he doesn't, Paul doesn't follow um, the Masoretic text, which is, uh, or the Septuagint. So he, there are, when Paul's writing this, he's reading, he's writing in Greek. The Old Testament was written in Hebrew, but they did have a Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible called the Septuagint. And sometimes or frequently, you will find that the Bible writers will quote from the Septuagint, the Greek um, translation of the Hebrew Bible. But he, he neither follows that nor what it seems like the Hebrew text. It's almost like he kind of paraphrases. And that's maybe one clue as to how to interpret this, because this is important. How you view your Bibles, how you view interpretation is important. I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself. So anyway, there does seem to be a seeming contradiction, right? So the pictures are the Lord leading a host of captives and then on the one hand, receiving gifts. On the other hand, in Ephesians, giving gifts. So how do we resolve this seeming contradiction? Why is it important? Well, let's start off with this. We, we here at ICC, we believe that the Bible is you know, inerrant, infallible, uh, without error in its original manuscripts, and so on. And, and this means that what we cannot say is that one of these is correct, right? And one of them is incorrect. Like one is a mistake or, you know, Paul fumbled it here. He totally missed that. He's not, he's a scholar. He's a very, very smart man. He knows his Old Testament scripture. He knows what he is doing. So there's no possibility that he would do something um, so grievous as to intentionally like misrepresent the Old Testament. In any case, our starting assumption is that these are reconcilable, that this does not represent a contradiction 
or that some part of Scripture is right and some wrong or that there's an error in the text or anything like that. All right? So we start off with that, which means that we need to um, bring these together in a meaningful way. The general principle that we hold to at ICC is that the New Testament doesn't ever reinterpret or strip away meaning from the Old Testament text. So whatever Paul is trying to say, it cannot undermine or contradict the Old Testament text. He needs to preserve it. He might expand on it because more light has been given. He might apply it in a different way, but it can't ever fundamentally change or negate the original meaning. Otherwise, you're going to come to the situation if, if Paul is essentially saying how you understood that passage in the Old Testament is completely wrong, and this is how you're supposed to understand it, and this has to do with any quotes in the New Testament of the Old Testament, then you're going to run into this problem that the whole Old Testament was unintelligible to the original Jewish audience. Because what was the original Jewish audience supposed to think when they read Psalm 68, 18? If Paul is reimagining it, if he is reinterpreting it, then somehow those early Israelites were supposed to hear Psalm 68, 18 and then think, oh, this must refer to the church and to the people in that church that are going to receive spiritual gifts from, from God for the purpose of unity. Now, you cannot possibly expect an Israelite to read that and think that's the interpretation of it. So if the New Testament is somehow reinterpreting, reimagining, then you kind of leave the original audience of the Old Testament like completely confounded and baffled. Um, so um, it can't, we can't do that. And we, we also don't want to think again that uh, Paul just takes Old Testament verses and uses them out of context to sound cool, basically, which is what like every Christian calendar does. <laughs> like, you know, it just takes Bible verses that sound cool, right, and slaps them on there and, and uh, you know, and then might give a little like explanation or devotional. That's not what Paul is doing either. He's not just viewing the Old Testament as like a mine for quotable quotes that he can just reinterpret how he wants. So um, options are that we cannot say, again, that this means something fundamentally different than it did before. So all that, how do we, how do we mesh this together, understanding kind of those principles uh, about hermeneutics? Well, the bigger picture of Psalm 68 is, again, about God conquering Israel's enemies and bringing the Israelites into the promised land a land of blessing, a land where God is, that God is giving to them. A frequent theme even in the conquest passages in Exodus and, and Numbers and Deuteronomy and in the book of Joshua, which we just finished, is that God is gifting the lands and the cities of the pagan nations into the hands of Israel almost as a gift. So they, in a sense, didn't, they did have to conquer, but it's very clear in Joshua that God is giving them 
even the victory. And then he's giving them even these villages and, and, and fields that they have neither you know, sown nor reaped. And it's kind of a phrase that means that you didn't earn any of this. I did it for you. I practically handed this whole thing to you on a silver plate. All you needed to do was have some faith. And talked in Joshua about how when they lacked faith, they lost. But when they had faith, they won. It wasn't a matter of their uh, military prowess or anything like that. So it was given as a gift. So even in Psalm 68, the idea is that God conquering the enemies, bringing judgment on them, bringing the Israelites into the land, gifting them the promised land, that's all just the gift of a victorious, sovereign Lord. It would seem that Paul is, isn't actually trying to quote Psalm 68, 18, word for word. He does do this in other passages. So, uh, in fact, it's unusual for him to start a quote of the Old Testament with, it says. He's going to say, it says, later on as well in, um, in uh, Ephesians 5.14. And uh, that's not a quote from any scripture that we know of. So it might, we'll get there when we get there, but it might be like an early church saying. So it says is kind of a, not an indicator of Paul, strictly speaking, reciting the Old Testament. How he does typically recite the Old Testament is like he does in the book of Romans. You don't have to turn there, but this is how he typically cites explicit passages from the Old Testament. He says things like this in Romans 9, 15. He says, for he says to Moses, God says to Moses, and then he quotes directly. Um, verse 17, for the scripture says to Pharaoh. So he's citing scripture and what uh, was said to Pharaoh. In verse 25, <clears throat> as indeed he says in Hosea. So Paul, it sounds like, knows how to cite explicit references to the Old Testament. He'll say Moses said, or, or the scriptures say, or Hosea says. Here it just says, it says, and that might be an indicator that, and especially since he's kind of loose in how he uh, translates Psalm 68, 18, that we know we're in the realm of not explicit quotation, okay? And this is all important. I know it might be, seem like a little bit um, deep in the weeds of how we study the Bible, but we just want to take this seriously um, and understand how to think through this. Um, so Paul is referencing Psalm 68, no doubt, but it sounds like maybe he's trying to bring out the context of the whole psalm to the Ephesians, perhaps in an ironic way. God has always been the kind of God to not only overcome his foes, but also provide for his people whatever they need. That's what you see in Psalm 68. So in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, God victoriously brings judgment to his enemies and salvation and blessing to his people. But what is subtly, maybe ironically different that the New Testament does? Who are the enemies of God and who are the people of God? Why bring Psalm 68 up? Well, it's because there's a very clear mention of the enemies of God and the people of God. What have we seen in Ephesians 1 through 3? A clear distinction between the Gentiles, the classic enemies of God, and the Jews, the people of God. But what has happened by way of the cross and the body of Christ? He has brought the enemies into 
his camp as the people of God, that God, by Christ's blood, is making his enemies his own. Psalm 68 presents the Gentiles as the enemies of Israel, references Bashan, uh, which is a, a classic um, uh, archetype of these uh, hostile pagan nations, Gentile nations. But we are to see that through Christ, God has made his enemies his people. And so now, who is getting the gifts and the blessings? Well, these former enemies of God. Just as much as God did good for the Israelites, so God is intending to do good for Gentiles alike. So there's no contradiction, really, in ideas between Psalm 68 and Ephesians. Only unexpected twist, you could say, is that God would love and save his enemies. So Ephesians 4, those captives of war are both the enemies of God who have been captured, but also the recipient of God's gifts. Because in the gospel, enemies become loved by God. Romans 5, 10. Paul says, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. So those who are enemies are now saved, are now blessed, are now giving gifts. The Bible frequently speaks of sinners not only as being enemies of God, which we are in our sin, Ephesians 2, but we're also enslaved and imprisoned by our sin. We're both perpetrators of sin and victims of sin. As Isaiah 42, 7, Isaiah 61, 1 talks about how God came to set the prisoners free. And that's us. We are both the enemies of God, also the victims of the enemies of God, you could say. So I take Ephesians 4 to say, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives. That would be us. We're enemies of God. But then he made us his people. That's implied by Ephesians you know, 2 and 3. And he turns around and then gives gifts to us. So that's, that's how I think we, we reconcile that without uh, disturbing any principles of, of, of taking the Old Testament for what it says, taking the New Testament for what it says. Um, I will say, though, that Harold Honer, whose commentary on Ephesians is like the gold standard, he thinks that the captives being led in Ephesians, so when it says he led a host of captives, that that refers to Satan and sin and death. Um, and so he, he doesn't see us or sinners, former sinners, being those captives. I just say that because he is very, very wise. Maybe I'm wrong about it. Um, I just happened to read his take, and I, I think it makes more sense um, that it is still talking about, like it does in Psalm 68, uh, the enemies of God. It's just we were the enemies of God. It's very clear. But now we have been saved, and instead of us bringing our gifts to him, the very gracious, benevolent God, what does he do with his people? He gives them gifts. So, all that to say, then, Jesus conquered sin, conquered death, led the prisoners of war to the Father as a gift, and that those prisoners, unbelievers, who were once hostile to God, in a shocking demonstration of grace, are embraced as the people of God through Jesus, united with Jews into this new kind of person and the family of God, no longer aliens or enemies, as Ephesians 2 and 3 have stated, but children of God, heirs of Christ, and now worthy to receive 
the inheritance, worthy to receive the gifts, worthy to serve and preserve our unity with each other by the power of God. Ephesians then 4, 9 and 10, in saying he ascended, it's just sort of an aside here, it's in parentheses probably in your Bible, and saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he had also descended into the lower regions of the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Very, very simple there. We're talking about Jesus Christ in his incarnation, in his death, in his resurrection and ascension into heaven. He is the one who, by virtue of his life and ministry, can be the one to give these gifts and has the right and the authority to do so. Descending to the lower regions, then, um, it doesn't refer to hell, but rather the, the earth, the, the planet. Um, and that's happened in the an incarnation. Um, it, can't, it can't mean hell because there's no reason to go there. I know there's a, sometimes an idea that when Jesus, when he, he died, he um, went into like hell to declare freedom to the captives or something or declare to the, to the demons his victory. But do you realize, like, I know we think of hell as a place where Satan and his demons dwell. What's wrong with that? <laughs> Hell is not their realm. You know what their realm is? <laughs> Remember Ephesians 2. He's the prince of the power of the air. Where is Satan and his demons, where do they dwell? It's here. <laughs> so hell is not where they go and, and, and party and have their dominion. It's on earth that they have their power and the, their dominion, right? So um, in, in any case, uh, you can go through different arguments about why um, it's not hell, but this literally just means that God, in his glory, he descended to the very earth, the sin-cursed earth that he created. This is where it doesn't get any worse. Aside from hell, and Jesus does not belong in hell, um, this is as, as bad as it gets. It's on this sin-cursed earth. And he came into it. Jesus Christ, Son of God, came into it. And then he was put into, I, I think maybe you can make an argument, a better argument that this uh, refers to the grave, that he was placed into the earth, like the little earth when he was buried. So that might be uh, a reference or a better way to refer. But it's still this earth, his incarnation, his death. He came down here in order to minister and to save us. He died an unjust death for our sins, substituting his perfect life for our imperfect life. And then he was resurrected, raised from the dead. He ascended then into heaven. Now, again, you have to, it's another misconception about heaven uh, to go along with our misconceptions about hell, heaven doesn't always refer to the place where we go when we die. Heaven can oftentimes, actually, in the Bible, just refers to the physical air, like atmosphere above us, or the, the, the place where the sun, moon, and stars are, outer space. So heaven can mean just like the air in which the, the birds fly, it can mean the, the space in which the sun, moon, and stars dwell and inhabit. Or, as Paul, I think, uses it when he says he went up into the third heavens, it means the place where God is, which is not necessarily a physical space, but is very present. It's a place where God dwells, um, and Hebrews 7.26 uses it like that. So here it's a reference both to the fact that he did physically ascend into the space where the birds are in Acts 1, but also that he has now ascended to where he was before in glory, in the presence of God, 
um, his father until he will return to us. It says, it ends, that he might fill all things. Um, there is a, a pagan uh, view called panentheism. So maybe you've heard of pantheism, which means there's a lot of gods. Panentheism, you see the word N in it. It literally does mean in. It's the idea that God is in everything. So God is in us. He's in everything because this is all God. This is all God. That's not what we, t- we mean when he says he might fill all things. This is a reference to Jesus' purpose and sovereign hand being over, in, through all things. That he's a part of. There's no part of this creation which is not under his control. And there is right now rebellion that's allowed because obviously sin is not something that he wills or, or, or I'm sorry, it's not something that he wants or desires, but it is being used by him. And one day there will be no sin and he will fill all things fully, meaning uh, there will be nothing that is uh, outside of, of his desire, plan, purpose of holiness and perfect goodness and righteousness. And Part of him accomplishing that or getting to that goal is giving gifts to equip us to do the work of the ministry. So we're going to continue this. We're going to see how pastors and how um, leaders in the church equip the saints to do this work. But for today, if you're not a Christian, the message of the gospel is that Jesus died for our sins, rose again, conquering sin and death, and that in his mercy and kindness gives us gifts so that we can walk in love and obedience to him. If you're a Christian this morning, I hope uh, at least you've been reminded either of his grace or reminded why it's important to really care about the text of the Bible. Maybe you learned something about hermeneutics. Uh, Maybe you have a greater appreciation for the spiritual gifts. I encourage you to take one thing away from the sermon and think about it. Talk about it while you're having your coffee and donuts and let it encourage you and propel you to seeking the kind of unity that Christ wants from his people. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you. Thank you for for the patience of of these precious people. Thank you that uh, in your sovereignty, you took so many very, very different kinds of people and brought them together into one to serve this greater purpose. And that's a real joy and privilege. It's also a little bit humbling to say that uh, I need other people, that I can't do this alone. So I pray, Lord, that you would continually uh, give us exactly what we need so that this church might grow in its unity with each other and with you, and that we might go and accomplish your purpose for your glory. Thank you again for being so good and so kind to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.